Welcome to the Hub Roundtable. Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of the Hub. I'm joined by Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large. Okay, Sean, December 1, 24 days to D-Day, Christmas <laughs> Day. You got young kids. Have you started to figure out what the heck you're going to put under the tree? Or are you going to do this last minute like all the rest of us? <laughs> well, we're chipping, we're chipping away. Uh, it's our oldest is now almost three. So he's, he's all in on Christmas. Our youngest, this will be his first Christmas. He was born last year, days after Christmas. So um, yeah, we, we'll talk today, I guess, about amongst other things, consumer confidence numbers and mm -hmm. people pulling, pulling back on retail spending. Um, that's not the case in the Spear household, I can tell you. <laughs> yeah, I expect lots of uh, hockey gear under the table for your one-year-old. I mean, that's a pretty ideal birthday date <laughs> for, you know, some kind of pro career <laughs> somewhere. Isn't that true? Like you take all the pros in the NHL and like 90% of them are born between January and March. Yeah, well, our oldest is he even has a better hockey birthday. He was born on January 26th, which is a birthday he shares with none other than Wayne Gretzky. Hey, the great one. Well, let's dive into uh, some of these economic numbers because there were a bunch this week. I think that uh, hub, uh, the Hub listeners, readers should be focused on. And maybe you can just give us a top line summary of those that really popped out from you, from GDP growth to uh, collapse in kind of consumer confidence. I think that's the only way you can describe it, plus some others that we'll get into on the first half of the show. Yeah, it was a really big week uh, when it comes to economic releases. And I, I think some of these releases uh, give us a bit of a, a, a window into uh, the Trudeau government's political standing and why so many people seem to be turned off the government. You mentioned uh, GDP uh, numbers. Uh, we have uh, we now learned that we, we actually contracted last quarter on an annualized rate of 1.1%. We managed to stave off a, a recession because of an upward revision to the previous quarter. Um, but the story is still one of a... And something, and Sean, wasn't there about almost 7% of government spending uh, increase in that quarter? <laughs> yes, that precisely. Helped. That helped a little bit, a little <laughs> pre-recession pre counter-cyclical spending. Hey, we've been doing it for the last eight, nine years. <laughs> Why should 2023 be any different? <laughs> uh, you mentioned the labor force survey numbers, so um, which came out this morning, uh, December 1st. Uh, unemployment rate now ticks up to 5.8%. Uh, um, but I think the consumer confidence numbers that you mentioned are, are for me, um, the, the most useful in terms of understanding what's really going on in the real economy. Um, the Conference Board of Canada, Rudyard, has been releasing a monthly index uh, on consumer confidence for, for 60 years. And November represents the third lowest uh, uh, outcome in the index um, since it started. Uh, to put that in some context, the, the two months that are lower are April 2020 in the midst of the pandemic and June 1982, when we had an unemployment rate of about 11% and uh, five-year mortgage rates approaching 20%. So it does give you a sense of the economy may be stagnant, it may even be slowed. Um, but in the minds of a lot of Canadians, it's it's far worse than that. And I, you know, it seems to me that helps to explain um, the extraordinary political challenge that the Trudeau government is now facing. Yeah, look, I think this all boils down to one single thing. Has your mortgage renewed in the last 12 months? 
And if it has, you're seeing, you know, a jump in your interest rate, your borrowing costs from, you know, some, let's call it 2% to 6%. And that translates into potentially thousands of dollars a month in more mortgage payments that's on deck. And I think that, I think something like half of all mortgages are going to reset, um, you know, because we, unlike the United States, we don't have 30-year mortgages. Everyone's on five-year terms, fixed or variable. Um, and, you know, we go through a lot of renewals. Therefore, 100% of mortgages are renewed within five years. A lot of people took out mortgages when rates were ultra low and maybe stretched in terms of their house price because they could afford more. And a bit like, you know, cattle, uh, given a, a big... Uh, big trough of grain when it comes to housing in Canada, we do like to indulge. So we indulge in a big way through 2021 and 2022. And I think that's really, Sean, my sense of what's underneath this all. And I think politically, it suggests to me that things aren't going to get better for the government. Because again, next year is a big mortgage reset year. If you look at that, just the back history of when people took out Yes. mortgages in the past. And I think you get that check and look, it may not be fair, may not be right, but the government in power, you know, is the focus of people's ire when they're already dealing with the affordability crisis of inflation. And then on top of that, now the affordability crisis that affects, you know, all the rest of their boring, all the rest of the spending in their lives, which is skyrocketing mortgage costs. Uh, so I guess my question back to you is like, if you're sitting there in the prime minister's office, you got to think there are forces here that are just well outside of your control at this point. And, you know, another hundred million dollars for bailing out the Canadian media. We'll talk about that in the back half of the show. Uh, <laughs> that ain't really going to move the dial, is it, Sean? No, and I would say uh, neither is talking about uh, how the economy is performing relative to other countries or some of the various other proof points that uh, the prime minister and the minister of finance have sought to draw on to make the case uh, that the economy isn't as bad as people think. Um, as you say, Rudyard, um, there is this growing disconnect between the headline numbers and people's household economies. And I think, as you say, that is fundamentally rooted in what's going on in the world of, of mortgage renewals. And I, I would just say, uh, one thing that worries me a little bit about that is it does create some perverse political incentives for the government to start to intervene uh, in, in terms of the, the renewal or refinancing of their mortgage of those mortgages. We saw in the fall economic statement, uh, the release of something the, the government's calling the mortgage compact, which at least at this point, uh, as I understand it, is limited to using the bully pulpit to encourage banks to grant dispensation to um, borrowers as they renew their mortgage in effect of uh, finding ways to minimize the the monthly the, the increase in the monthly carrying costs they face but as we get closer to an election uh you know my fear is that 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 policy shifts from uh, merely using the bully pulpit to actually using the levers of public policy um and as i said in my our conversation with amanda lang this week which will be up shortly we've seen that story before haven't we and it ends poorly when governments start to uh distort uh, the mortgage markets by putting the, their hands on the scale um, that in a, in a way, in a short way, is the story of the 2007 housing crash in the United States. And so that's a very long way of saying, you're right. I think a lot of these dynamics are outside the government's control. 
And the only way they can get worse, it seems to me, is that the government tries to bring them within their control. Yeah, look, I mean, the banks also were out this week with some pretty, um, pretty disappointing results, much larger uh, provisions for losses related to corporate, you know, and consumer mortgage borrowing. I, I think, Sean, I hope that, you know, the intervention has already been ongoing and it's been extensive over the last couple of decades in terms of the financialization of housing as an asset. And the government has used the CMHC and other mechanisms at its disposal to, you know, satisfy, try to satisfy for Canadians' rapacious demand for housing. It's a big political and economic story next year is going to be housing. And I think we've seen interest rates come off a little bit over the last month. There's been a big rally in the bond market as people anticipate that central banks in the face of this weakness are going to stop uh, raising rates. It might be a little too early to declare victory just yet on the fight against inflation, if you look at the 1970s as an example, but we'll see. So the reality is probably that borrowing costs will go down next year, but I think what everyone acknowledges is that they're not going to go down to the levels where people originated these mortgages, yes. you know, three, four years ago. So people are going to take a hit that is coming. And that hit is on top of the effects of inflation. So yes, if you're in the public sector, if you're unionized, you've probably received some wage increases that go a ways toward restoring your purchasing power. But there's a lot of people who aren't in the public ser service or aren't part of unionized labor who haven't received the same kind of generous kind of wage settlement. So maybe those are coming. I don't know. But the result of it all, I just think, is a very ornery country going into 2024. And I, I who knows um, what happens? But I would just think if you're this prime minister and you're trying to convince yourself that there is a path forward for you, it's just increasingly hard to do that against the backdrop of a declining economy. That defeats governments. It's the kryptonite in Canadian politics, the kryptonite in any advanced Western economy. But I want to end this segment, Sean, on the discussion of this plunge again in per capita uh, GDP. Um, this is something we follow a lot at the Hub. In fact, we were kind of early on this a couple of years ago. It's great to see other people catching up to a debate about why per capita GDP is not unimportant. What do we see in the latest numbers and what do you think they they represent what should we take away from them yeah really striking uh roger uh, gdp per capita um was lower in q3 2023 than it was in q2 2018 and so not only in other words is our gdp per capita our you know which is a good metric for understanding uh canadian living standards not only have they flatlined they're actually now following we are collectively poorer than we were prior to the pandemic um even though we've recovered the lost output as you know in overall terms we ourselves are poorer um and again i think when you put all these things together um you create a, a kind of political economy brew <laughs> which as you say uh is poisonous uh for incumbent governments yeah and i just want to remind people what these numbers represent. So this is, you know, multiple quarters now of declining per capita GDP when our per capita GDP vis-a-vis -vis the United States is what, 20, 25% lower, Sean, something in that range. It's significant. It's now you can say there's a much more economic inequality in the United States, unequal 
division of wealth that contributes to these numbers in the aggregate. Yes, I get that. But there does become a moment that I worry about, a tipping point at some point in the future, maybe the not so distant future, where we're just demonstrably poorer. And remember, this 3.7% decline in the most recent quarter, that's national. That's, that's a national aggregate number. I'd yes. love to know, like, what is the number in Ontario? Um, what is what is the plunge in per capita GDP in the province? And this is not a criticism of immigrants. It's a criticism of the policy of immigration, where this government has so massively expanded the annual intake that they have had to, in a sense, uh, manipulate or in some cases almost disregard the point system to meet these self-imposed quotas of half a million or more uh, new arrivals in the country. And what that's done, understandably, is it's meant that we're taking in a different type of immigrant than we did in years past, an immigrant who is less highly skilled, probably has less language skills, harder to integrate into the economy, harder to find higher paid employment for the type of skilled labor that is already scarce in a pretty sclerotic Canadian economy. So I don't know, Sean, I just, I, I think that there are, there are some unfortunate connections here. The story behind this per capita GDP is not just as simple as our lousy ability to invest in productivity or um, the lack of foreign direct investment. Those are all real factors. I think this is another consequence of this mass immigration um, policy that we've had for the last few years. It's I don't know, is it just coincidence that the decline of these numbers seven quarters ago really starts with a massive upswing uh, in immigration? And where does that lead us? Where does it lead us in a country when we know that per capita spending per citizen by government is going up, but per capita GDP by citizen is going down? That, Sean, suggests to me like a dangerous delta is kind of emerging in Canada's economic calculus. Yeah, well said, Rudyard. Um, you mentioned that um, that we at the hub started raising issues around at the time what was uh, what was already declining GDP per capita rates, um, and, and the reason we were doing that was because we were concerned that there was too much focus in the media on the change in GDP itself, uh, and and the reason that that struck us as a incomplete way to understand what was occurring within the Canadian economy was precisely because we were seeing these, these large scale increases in immigration, which necessarily were raising GDP rate, GDP and the level of economic activity in the country. Um, but that's, you know, that's hardly a, a, a measure of the overall uh, economic and well-being of Canadians. If you simply change uh, the denominator, then of course the number is going to go up, right? Um, and so we made the case it was much more important, especially in a period of of uh, large scale increases in immigration, understand what was happening at the per person level as, as opposed to uh, the economy as a whole. And I think, as you say, what we've discovered um, is that at the precise moment that the government was essentially juicing GDP through its immigration policy we've experienced this um, pretty marked drop in GDP per capita. I mean, to put it bluntly, I, I mentioned at the outset that we managed to stave off a, a recession, uh, at least for now. If we would have had regular levels of, of immigration increases over the past couple of years, we almost certainly would, would have been in a recession. 
Um, and so that gives you a sense, I think, of how manipulatable um, GDP numbers are and why it is so important that we are seized by increasing G by a program to increase GDP per capita to affect raise living standards for Canadians. And, it, you know, we'll do our best. I'm not sure the next election will be fought on this, um, but it's something that will continue to be um, beating the drum on at the hub because at the end of the day, it's what matters, right? Yeah. Well, let's take a quick break. Back on the other side, we're going to talk about the problems or not that journalists are having with per capita GDP income in their profession. It doesn't look like such a hard road to hoe for the ink drenched Scribner class in Canada. They're getting a big hundred million dollar bailout from Google on top of more than a hundred million in the fall economic statement. What the heck's going on here? How does this profession suddenly get all the attention and generosity of this government late in 2023? We'll get into it on the other side of this break. Hey, Hub Podcast listener, you're just one click away from getting access to all of the Hub's best content. Visit www.thehub.ca for our original journalism, commentary, wine reviews, poetry. We've got it all. The thinking person's one-stop destination for news and information is www.thehub.ca. While you're there, sign up for our complimentary Hub membership. You'll get delivered to your inbox each and every Saturday compilation of our best writing from the previous week again free for you right now at www.thehub.ca welcome back to the hub roundtable rudyard griffiths here the executive director of the hub joined by sean spear our editor at large well sean it's happened the google deal has been announced Media in Canada is not going into a doom loop with the world's largest platform banning news content on its sites. No, instead, Google has agreed to a $100 million payment, essentially establishing a fund that will be negotiated by a single entity representing all journalists, news organizations in Canada. This comes on top of what was it, Sean? I think $127 million in additional funding for journalists through labor tax credits announced in the fall economic statement. What's your takeaway on this? What should we be paying attention to? Well, the first thing I'd say is that uh, li listeners ought to read uh, Rudyard's article this week on the subject in which um, he does some back of the envelope calculations. And when you start to stack um, these different government interventions, either ones that involve direct government subsidies or in the case of the Google agreement, um, indirect subsidies through a government mandate, um, we're getting to something approaching 50 cents on every dollar paid for the production of news content by private news organizations now being essentially supported by government. We're not far Sean, off. Sean, yeah, just, just because we, we always do appreciate detail here at the hub that would be 50 percent for digital news and print providers um not necessarily for broadcasters but what was interesting is that it, the ministers of heritage's testimony late in the week about the google deal seemed to suggest that the cbc as a broadcaster publicly funded would be eligible on a prorated basis i.e how many journalists does cbc and its french language equivalent have Take that hundred million uh, divided by that plus all the other journalists in the country. CBC and 
its French language services could walk away with fully a third, 30 million of this 100 million. Pretty incredible. Yeah, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Um, and it makes, <laughs> we're already this morning seeing the Toronto Star come out against the agreement. You know, you're starting to think that a lot of the large incumbents, which of course were um, fundamentally behind the, the, the lobbying for the Online News Act, which is the, the genesis of this agreement between the government and Google, if they're regretting asking for it in the first place. Because of course, Rajiv, um, many of the large incumbents already had pre-existing agreements with Google, which if I understand correctly, will now be essentially torn up and replaced with this new regime in which Google is going to provide funding through one single window. We don't know who or how, what that window is going to be. Um, and so, yeah, you're seeing, at least in the case of the Toronto Star, we'll wait to see if we hear anything from the Globe and Mail, the National Post, um, a bit of buyer's remorse. Um, I, I just oh, make one... Isn't it awful, Sean? Rent-seeking <laughs> backfires on greedy corporate <laughs> owners. Oh, let's cry me a river. <laughs> I There's so many things that uh, one can say, and I, you've been spending more time on this this week, so I want to turn it to you in a second. But if I, at the risk of making a kind of wonky point, one thing that I think people should be concerned about, Rudyard, is the extent to which this agreement um, strikes me as essentially rewriting legislation passed by the Parliament of Canada, right? Like Parliament passed a piece of legislation which codified uh, a set of expectations on how the Online News Act was going to work. The government then went about promulgating regulations which, you know, stretched the legislation to a certain extent, um, but still broadly conformed with the legislation. We now have an agreement between the government of Canada and Google, which is Michael Geis, the University of Ottawa law professor, says uh, at the Hub this morning, you know, doesn't really resemble the legislation at all. I mean, at, at, at the risk of sounding like a kind of parliamentary scourge, it, it's, it's almost like kind of lawless in a way. It, it, uh, uh, you know, the government passed legislation and now seems to be essentially breaking its own law by negotiating this agreement, which involves less money um, then was set out in the draft regulations. Totally different funding mechanism. No, totally different. Exactly. None of the processes inside the legislation, which would have ostensibly tried to solve for various policy priorities that the government had articulated. I mean, it is, you're right, Sean, it's, it's shocking. You know, that's, as I say, maybe in the broad scheme of things, that's not what people will be focused on today. But we used to have an expectation that government passed legislation and then the government abided by the legislation. In this case... <laughs> The government is uh, declaring victory, you know, in terms of striking this agreement with Google and, and making sure that news isn't taken off the, you know, one of the most important platforms there are. And I should be clear that the hub is, is glad, glad about that, <laughs> but it was a threat and a crisis that was created by the government itself. And there's yeah. now this piece of legislation that it is essentially defenestrating uh, in, in the form of this agreement with Google. Yeah, well said. I mean, they effectively tried to call Google's bluff. Google refused to negotiate because what has been approved is, is what Google originally proposed in the very first place, which was a standalone fund that they would contribute to that the industry, i.e. journalists would, you know, self self manage. Um, so the fact that, as you say, the the actual policy action of the government, now you could say it's a little bit better because these aren't public funds that are being dispersed through a completely new <laughs> kind of scheme, but there's a lot of regulatory and other 
expense and half to the government and the department uh, in this case. I don't know if the CT CRTC will even be involved anymore because it doesn't seem like there's any rationale to have them involved if this is a voluntary agreement and Google effectively is no longer classified under the legislation. And the whole thing is just, yeah. Look, there's so many ways to get at this. I My final point on it though is it's just odd how in Canada we found yet another profession, another industry, or maybe it's not odd, that warrants large-scale public subsidies. Um, you did an interview, maybe you talked about it a bit, with a um, senior editor for our Future of News series uh, at the Washington Post, and you know he was kind of completely non-plus, this is a non-starter in the United States to think about large-scale government subsidies for journalism. It's not even part of the conversation. And here in Canada, not only is it part of the conversation, it's a, one of the defining kind of legislative and policy debates that this government's been involved in for the last six months. And I just, it's part of me, Sean, just thinks about, you know, we we're talking the first half about the economy. I mean, we have, what is it, you know, Upwards, if you add municipal, provincial governments, 40% of GDP across the country is somehow tied up in one form of government or not, uh, employing hundreds of thousands of people. You then have a near state wrapped around that government of education, healthcare, and other workers who effectively are funded by government, um, you know, at arm's length. Then you have wrapped around that a whole series of protected industries from supply management to telecommunications, to banking, to arts and culture. The list goes on and on. They are, in effect, subsidized by government. You then have regional, you know, uh, seasonal employment programs and other, you know, green energy, clean energy <laughs> subsidies, endless battery plants. You know, you could argue that the auto sector in Ontario is now a government subsidized entity that doesn't really exist on its own as a real thing anymore. It is a thing funded by government. And now we add to this, you could say it's a rounding error in terms of the cost of these battery plans, but we round to this, the entire journalistic class yes. is now going to have potentially half of their salaries paid directly or indirectly by government. What's left in this country, Sean? What is left? Like who is actually working and generating uh, income through productive market validated activity that allows them, frankly, a degree of freedom that I find just so precious in my life, you know, the idea that I, I'm involved in this enterprise with you and other projects, I, you know, for lack of a better expression, I eat what I kill. And I realize that often isn't for everybody and there's uncertainty and risk. And some people aren't calibrated towards risk. I get all that. So it's not a judgment on the people in government or in these protected sectors, but I just wonder about the psychology of the country and where we end up if it affect everybody somehow is rent seeking somewhere. And every part of everyone's paycheck is somehow subsidized by government. Maybe that explains this low productivity. Maybe that's part of why in America, this isn't even a discussion. It's not even a debate because they just have such a more dynamic view of the economy, the individual, your role in it. And what's honorable, like what's honorable at the end of the day, I got my rant in. <laughs> it, 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 it's a good one and i'm i'm grateful that you previewed uh the first in a, a new series um that we'll be running at hub dialogues over the next several weeks which is a dedicated podcast interviews with people in and around the world of journalism as part of the hub's broader 
Future of News series. The first episode will kick off uh, next week with Marty Baron, the former news editor at the Washington Post, previously at the, the Boston Globe, uh, about, among other things, his new book uh, entitled The Collision of Power, Trump, Bezos, and the Washington Post. And what struck me about the book and our subsequent conversation gets to the psychology that you were referring to, Rudyard. When Bezos takes over the Washington Post, when he buys it, they enter into an intensive period where they're developing a strategy to make the organization profitable. You know, that they saw it was their responsibility to sink or swim in a market economy. What have our major newspapers done over the past few years? They've gone to Ottawa with lobbyists to solve their problem. They don't, their business strategy is a government policy. It's not about them, themselves figuring out how they're going to find a way to, to make their businesses sustainable in the new digital environment. Their strategy is lobbying. And I think that strikes at the distinction between what we've seen play out uh, when it comes to journalism over the past several years, and most recently in the past couple of weeks in Canada, and what we're seeing play out in the United States. And as you say, that distinction, that psychological distinction is reflected in my conversation with Marty Barron and others that we'll uh, have as part of this series over the next several weeks. Yeah, look, the only thing you can say in defense of the media industry is they're just doing what everyone else does in Canada, right? What the other 75% or so of the economy, if you have a problem, you go to government, you rent seek, and you uh, receive a subsidy to solve your problem. And then you're engaged in, you know, your Faustian relationship with with government from that point or forward. And just, again, this, it's hard to think of like just a dwindling piece of economic activity in this country that's actually free of government entanglement, um, that doesn't somehow self-censor, self-edit, behave in ways that are conscious of where your paycheck is coming from. And we have to be honest with ourselves. That is a very human and very understandable thing. And I just think the irony here, and it's what I wrote about in my piece this week on this Google deal, is that you now have a scenario where print and digital uh, journalistic organizations, so think of the Globe and Mail or the Toronto Star, upwards of 50% of the salaries of the very news reporters that editors will assigned to cover the federal government and cover for Google, one of the most important companies in AI, who's going to have a massive public uh, affairs and GR, uh, probably headache in Canada about the rollout of AI. These same reporters, we have to believe, are going to be as rigorous and independent and fierce when half of their salary is coming from the very entities that will be involved in the in the the regulation of the some of the most important technologies of the coming century, I mean that's a joke. I said it's audaciously draw jopping, uh, in my view. Well, all I can say is here at the hub, um, we're doing our best to, like so many other small players uh, in this industry, to figure this out. You know, you often describe, Roger, uh, what we do is like trying to figure out a Rubik's Cube. And, and that's really what we're trying to do. We, the market has obviously been transformed um, over the past uh, few decades. And, and that really is at the heart of the Future of News project. The question, of course, is what do we do about it? Do we go to Ottawa kind of hat in hand? Or do we experiment with different business models, 
different verticals, uh, different financing models, et cetera, et cetera, to figure out how to produce sustainable news in this new environment. Both of us are optimistic that entrepreneurs are going to figure this out. Um, if there's any it, entrepreneurs left. <laughs> <laughs> but it's regrettable that um, that for a lot of people in the industry, they've you know essentially decided that what they're going to do is manage decline. And you know that's not what we're doing at the Hub, and we're grateful yeah. for listeners and readers who are along for the journey with us. Well, for the discerning listeners who've made it to the very end of this podcast, we are going to do, Sean, an end of year kind of look behind the hub. What's going on? What's happened to us this year? What have we learned? What's been some of our challenges over the last 12 months? We did this a year ago, and I think listeners, readers uh, enjoyed a kind of peek inside. So if you have uh, a question, there's just something that you'd like us to answer about how the hub operates, what we do, what we think, send us uh, an email now. Uh, you can send that. Amal, what's the best email for people to contact us on? I think the best email will be editorial at the hub.ca. Terrific. That's Amal Adar Guzman, the amazing producer of this podcast. So editorial at the hub.ca. If you have a question, we'll try to get to that in our episode, our year end episode, looking at the year that was at the hub coming out in a couple of weeks. So thanks everybody for tuning in. Thanks for listening and reading. We had an absolutely phenomenal month at the hub this last 30 days, one of our best uh, ever. So thank you to all of you who like smart talk, uh, great writing informed conversation. You make me hopeful each and every day. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Hub Roundtable. If you've enjoyed what you've just heard, come on over to www.thehub.ca and check us out. You'll find all kinds of great commentary, analysis, and insights by our writers, including Sean Spear. While you're there, consider clicking on the Join button. This will take you to our complimentary membership offer. Put in your email and we will send you each Saturday a compilation of our best writing and commentary from the week that was. We really appreciate your support, and we also greatly appreciate the support of the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Foundation and the Maxine and Ira Gornowski Gluskin Foundation for making these podcasts possible. The Hub Roundtable is produced and edited by Amal Otter Guzman. Thank you for listening. <laughs>